Evangelist podcast here to spread the good news that books and reading will save us all. Lissa and Marion will be talking about what's up in their reading and writing lives, reviewing recent reads, urging each other on to writing triumph, and generally wallowing in the pleasure of hanging out with a friend who loves books. Join us, wallow with us. This is episode six, in which we will be discussing Foundry Side by Robert Jackson Bennett. Before we get into the history of how we came to be talking about this novel, Here's a synopsis. Sanchia Grotto is a thief and a damn good one, and her latest target, a heavily guarded warehouse on Tavon's docks, is nothing her unique abilities can't handle. But unbeknownst to her, Sanchia's been sent to steal an artifact of unimaginable power an object that could revolutionize the magical technology known as scriving. The merchant houses who control this magic, the art of using coded commands to imbue everyday objects with sentience, have already used it to transform Tavon into a vast, remorseless capitalist machine. But if they can unlock the artifact's secrets, they will rewrite the world itself to suit their aims. Now someone in those houses wants Sanchia dead and the artifact for themselves. And in the city of Tavon, there's nobody with the power to stop them. To have a chance at surviving and at stopping the deadly transformation that's underway, Sanchia will have to marshal unlikely allies, learn to harness the artifact's power for herself, and undergo her own transformation, one that will turn her into something she could never have imagined. Marion, how did you get me to read this book? <laughs> well, I think I just recommended it relentlessly, but... Um, you had asked me, like, how did I come to read this book? And I can't remember where I heard about it first. It just kind of appeared on my mental horizon, I guess. I was, you know, working on a magic system for my own writing, and I was studying Brandon Sanderson's Rules of Magic, and somehow this book got recommended to me as a great example of world building, which is something I work hard at and struggle with sometimes. And, but I just don't know. And I walked into it absolutely cold, had no concept what the book was about. And then I was astonished by it. I just bowled over by it. And I hesitated to recommend it to you, Lisa, um, because... Gosh, well, like so many things, right? So when I read that description, I was like, "Why am I reading this out loud?" Why am I reading this, this book? This is and clearly not a Lissa book from the description. I know, and I remember last time we were recording a podcast, and at the end we were recommending books to each other, and I went ahead and recommended Foundryside to you, but I was worried because it was so violent. But then afterwards, I mentioned to you this uh, theme of. of of what happens when capitalism has no fetters placed upon it. And you're like, oh, that sounds interesting to me. So then I felt a little bit better about my recommendation, but I did worry hard about recommending it to you because, and this is going to sound awful, maybe, I don't know. But it's No, true. it's okay. In, in science fiction and fantasy books, there's like pockets of 
activity, different kinds of fantasy books, different kinds of science fiction books. And there's a certain brand of science fiction book that is swords and sandals, you know, um, full of full of fighting and, and, and war and stuff like that. And I tend not to read those kind of books. And this book feels like it belongs there, but it's such a a big mental book, I guess, that in a way, maybe it, it transcends its category, if that makes sense. Well, I've not read a lot of books that are just fighting books, so it's hard for me <laughs> I mean, to compare. You know, I have a 17-year-old boy, and he loves, like, war books, battle battle books, real, like, historical fiction and alternate historical fiction, and sometimes in fantasy books that I read, they're so... Um, centered on that 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 I'm looking for something more I guess right. I don't know so I was worried that this book would be like that when I walked into it because to me I looked at that description and I looked at the cover of the book which is beautiful but it looked to me like oh this is going to be more interested in in politics I guess than than I want it to be but it turns out the politics was a great part of it for me so so I can't remember where I heard it and I can't remember who recommended it to me and I have no idea why I picked it up other than that I felt it would teach me something and then I was just raving about it to everybody I could find um and it's, it's a, awesome it is awesome it's a great big book the the audiobook is narrated by Tara Sands and it's 19 hours and 34 minutes and I've listened to the whole thing twice. Twice. Yeah. I listened to it. And because I listen to it when I drive or when I'm alone, I like doing chores, I do that. But it's the summertime, so I haven't been alone. I had it out of the library for, and I was almost at the very end and it returned itself automatically. <gasps> and I had, you know, an hour and a half left. And I got the real paper book copy, but I couldn't bring myself to finish it with the words in my head because the narration is so good. It's just really it's excellent. And to really not good. know so. that last hour and a half, like I've, so. I've <laughs> listened to that last hour and a half probably four times. The so. last hour and a half of this is excellent. It's amazing. And so I actually waited through the whole holds line for the audiobook to come back in for me just so I could listen to it on audio at the end. So what do you have to do? So I had a long gap before I got to finish it. And I finished it some time ago. So I'm counting on you, Lissa, person who's listened to it twice all the way through and the ending 47 times very recently. Four. To, four to, times. 47 times to, to, yeah. uh, to fill in the gaps and remind me of stuff that I'm forgetting. Okay. Okay. But since I couldn't remember how I got this recommendation and I hesitated to recommend it to you, I thought you might want to talk about book recommending in general a little bit. Oh, it's so tricky. <laughs> So what do you rely on? Um, I rely on being really honest with people I trust about what I do and don't like in books. And then I rely on them to push me outside of that. Okay. So so if I'm your friend right. and I'm recommending you books are. to you, which I am and which I do, yes. uh, how do I know how far outside your box to push you? Is there? It's all a giant I... experiment. Oh, so it's dangerous. It is. You have to trust that your friendship is stronger than your book recommendation. 
guess right? so. Right? Like, you could recommend something, and then ultimately I could come back and be like, eh, I actually know. Yeah. Or I just didn't finish that or whatever. And you're such a, um, a good good person in, in, you know, working so hard on, on honest relationships and so forth that you would probably be okay telling me, you know, Marion, it just doesn't work for me, which is fine, by the way. That's good. I would. I wouldn't even lie, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it would sound probably still like, I'm not getting that done or I haven't been able to prioritize that or I got Mm -hmm. distracted by this other good thing. But those things would all still be the truth. Like I would tell you those truths. Just not, just not loving it the way you did. But when, when you interact with a book and you just really love that book and then you give it to somebody and they don't, it hurts a little bit. It does a little. Yeah. And, and, but funny thing. Okay. Here's two books that I love. Okay. One is station 11. As you know, yes, I love this book and I have given away so many copies of it to people here. Take this. You must read it. And I've recommended it zillions of times more than that. And if somebody doesn't like Station Eleven, I admit I give them a little side eye like. Like maybe you're not the person that I thought you were. It's so. just not their time. It's not their time, and, and but happily, I know very maybe one person, maybe two people who have not really loved that book. But my most favorite book in the world is *The Great Gatsby*, right? Yes, and I yes, so it's to everybody. But I never recommend it to people because right. I know that it's a love it or hate it book, and that there is a big percentage of the population that just does not like Gatsby. Now, my feelings wrong. about they're wrong. Yeah. Yes. It's okay. They're wrong. No, they're wrong. My feelings about it are that people read it in school and they read it when they're 16 or 17 and that I don't think it's a book you can understand well when you're 16 or 17. No. Um, you've not been kicked around enough yet to, to understand how Gatsby is. And it is a book that requires a lot from its readers. It There's a ton of, you know, blank space stuff Fitzgerald is not telling you and he expects you to pay attention. And and figure that out and it's so it's not maybe a relaxing read for such a little book and i and because i know those things i don't think poorly of people who just don't like gatsby i'm like i'm down with that you know it's cool when you're ready for it it will come to you you know and i believe yeah. that with my heart so so it's okay um, it, it's really tricky, though, to recommend books to people because there can be things where, like, you want the person to read it so you have that shared reference. Yeah. Like, it, there's there's a fair bit of selfishness in recommending books to people mm-hmm. because you want them to then have that common language with you and get your jokes and get your references. But right. there's a fair bit of and investment you're asking from them sure. to read the book to get all that. That's true of, like, television and films a lot. Neither one of us watches a ton of television. So people make references to tv shows all the time and i don't get them um and i have to say just say you know it's me (laughs) right it's all right Uh, you can tell me what that reference means and i'll remember it or better yet thing i did yesterday you can send me an article about that movie and i will study it (laughs) i'm not gonna watch it i would but you can send me an article about it (laughs) and i'm reading the article and it's great and you read long articles too I'm always a dazzle. Yeah, I would happily read a whole yeah, article Lisa about has a, a great, movie. Lisa has a great it. attention span. I'm 7,000 words into this article and it's still going. So, yeah. <laughs> it's a true story, Lisa. Oh, oh, my goodness. She's so much thinking. So much thinking. All right. So do you... I just don't so read whole we, nonfiction books. That's the trick with articles. They're <laughs> oh, like a well, really I, short nonfiction book. 
I do read whole nonfiction books. So yeah, see, yeah. I admire that, but yeah, I don't do yeah. that. Yeah, and I sometimes I read whole articles, but there's a reason why people who subscribe to the New Yorker have them stacked in the corner of their living room is because nobody has read all those words. I mean, I subscribe to the New Yorker. <laughs> Do you? I've always, you. yeah, I've always subscribed to the New Yorker. I, I, I'm not ashamed to say I read it for the cartoons, you know. And I read the movie reviews for movies yeah. I don't watch. For, for movies you don't go to. Yep. Well, you should tell me when they have a good movie review. Say, Marion, the New Yorker says you should go see blah blah blah, and then I'll go see the movie. I mean, they almost never say the movie's good. That's what I like really? about their reviews. I feel oh, like I'm not really missing anything. How fascinating! I. They're very critical. I feel like I, I need to go them. read. I feel like I need to go read the New Yorker's movie reviews now. So I can. I um, that's what I did last time. I had a baby, which was like years ago now, but I saved up mm-hmm. all the movie reviews out of the New Yorker. I tore them all out for my whole pregnancy and saved them for when I was at the <laughs> hospital, when I was in labor. And it was great. <laughs> that's beautiful. That's lovely, Lisa. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> um, you know, quirky me. Um, there you go. Because I knew at that point it was like second baby. And so I knew I was never going to watch a movie again. So I should find out what was up. <laughs> yeah. 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 I was. So do you think it's better? Do you prefer to stumble into a book by chance? Or do you like to have somebody stamp of approval on it before you read it, given how long it takes to read a book? It's a commitment thing. I like a stamp of approval. but And I like a deadline. I like both. Okay. Or I like the commitment to discuss it later. So like I can read a book for book club without a stamp of approval, knowing that even if it's bad, I have a deadline and I have people who will show up and talk me through what I didn't like about it or whatever. But if I'm going to read it on my own, I like a stamp of approval, which increasingly I get from, you know, the author Twitter, but... Yeah, that's true. You are a Twitter person. I'm still trying to learn to love Twitter. I'm trying real hard. Um, and I read your tweets. So. Mine, mine are like, here's a great book again. It's kind of all it is. What about you? How are you choosing? Um, ha- you know, probably social media is playing a bigger role than it used to. And I do follow um, like Penguin Teen on Instagram. So I know what's coming out. And I look at like the Goodreads, what's coming out this month list to see what might be new that might catch my, might catch my eye. And, uh, sometimes, frankly, I just go to the library and look at the shelves until books speak to me. And then I take the whole shelf and I go home. So I need all that the books. is a thing. <laughs> that is a thing. That is a I've thing. I've been looking that... at new books more recently than I have in the past. Which has been nice. It's been fun to discover things. But I've really just been following the author Twitter. And yeah, when the people that I already like to read recommend other things. You, yeah, get that. And I, I at least look pretty closely at I have them. to say, several books that I've read lately have been recommended by you. And you have something that you say from time to time um, that I was remembering when I just finished reading again, uh, Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore by Robin Sloan on audio. Uh, I love that book. And it's such a beautiful book and so lovely and fabulous, so many different levels. But the very, very end sounds like you to me because something you say on your Twitter or when you're recommending books or talking about books with people is, this was the right book for me right now. 
and it, oh yeah and i do believe that there's seasons in a book um i had picked up I can't remember what book it was, but I put it back down again. I'm like, oh, this is a winter book. This is not the right book for me right now. But here's the very end, just the very end of Mr. Penumbra. Um, and I think I'll back it up a couple of paragraphs if I can here. It says, there is no immortality that is not built on friendship and work done with care. All the secrets in the world worth knowing are hiding in plain sight. It takes 41 seconds to climb a ladder three stories tall. It's not easy to imagine the year 3012, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. We all have new capabilities now, strange powers that we're still getting used to. The mountains are a message from Aldrag the Worm Father. Your life must be an open city with all sorts of ways to wander in. After that, the book will fade the way all books fade in your mind. But I hope you will remember this. A man walking fast down a dark, lonely street, quick steps and hard breathing, all wonder and need, a bell of above a door and the tinkle it makes, a clerk and a ladder and a warm golden light, and then the right book exactly at exactly the right time. So I was thinking about that when I was thinking because, like I said, you talk about the right book at the right time and Foundry Side was really the right book for me at the right me time. Me too. And... I'm so glad that when you said it was the right book for you at that time, I was like, yes, it was a successful recommendation. It was. <laughs> and she liked it. So anyway. And it also, it's really bloody. It is. And there's a ton of violence and like pain. Violent. and like Very violent. So painful. Yes. Which was and yet still the right book at the right time. So you mm-hmm. can't judge just by that, which is very tricky. It is. So overall, this is a win for you right off the bat. Right? We should get that out of the way, right? Yes. Yes. Yay! Yes. Big win. Whew, good. And thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you said I was hesitant. So what made it a win for you? Oh, um, like lots of damaged people helping each other. <laughs> That's a win <laughs> for me right now. Um, people who like think they want a thing this is just me liking fiction right characters who want a thing and then find out they want a different thing mm-hmm. or that they need to accomplish it a different way but like in big epic ways like you think you want a thing like Sanchia right thinks she wants some things but really she's looking at daily survival as pretty great and then she gets drawn into this giant thing mm-hmm And she has so many more adventures and so much more that's possible to her. I don't know. It was a great adventure story. It was great to see a good adventure story. It is a great adventure story, and it's a heist novel. I do Um, like heist novels. And I love heist novels. And and it was a properly done heist novel with good heists that were clever uh, and worked within the framework that the author set in terms of world building and, and magic systems, which is a very, very constricted, nice, firm boundaries on those things. And um, so there weren't I, a lot of cheats, which was no, nice. like not, Ocean's no. Eleven. Like I like Ocean's Eleven, the movies, but yeah. like they're full of cheats. Yeah. This didn't have cheats. This had good setup so that it when does. the heist came, it was believable. Yes. And. Toward the end, I was like, oh, man, he totally set me up for this, you know, 200 pages ago or six yes. hours ago, whatever. And I didn't see it coming. And he's excellent. 
So I love that part. Like, it's just a really good, rollicking adventure story. And it's a total page turner. And my, my son listened to all 20 hours of it in like two days. Um, and he is, being 17 years old, you know, he's a surface adventure reader, and which is fine, by the way. Um, but he loves a good ripping yarn. And it is a good ripping yarn. But it's also so packed with heavy duty themes and it never beats you over the head with them it it never makes it central when we were doing gilded wolves i was griping about gilded wolves because fairly so fairly yeah i was pretty gripey about it because i felt like the themes were you were being beaten with them you know turn the page and stick whap beats you with the theme again and i never felt like that with foundry side all those themes are there and they're explained and they're um investigated and they're explored and they're points are made about them very clear political statements about them but you never it never gets in the way of the fact that it's just a really great page turner of a book agreed so i was like i said i'm sure that i came to it because of a world building recommendation or i'd heard that it had great world building um and I think it's a really fascinating world. This concept that there are these, it felt like Renaissance Florence to me. Did I mean, I've like not that? read anything really about Renaissance Florence. Oh, but... well, you have, I mean, you have these great merchant houses in, in reality land. Like there'd be, you know, the, the Medici, for example, you know, they're, they have their big, really like a literal castle in the middle of Florence and they're running that city politically and socially and economically and in, in, in warring against the other great houses there. Um, and that's kind of what we have here. And the characters have kind of vaguely Italian names. Sometimes you have Sancia, oh, yeah. right? Our main character. And then there's the Dandolos, which sounds Renaissance Italian. You got Gregor Dandolo and his mom, Ophelia. Um, and, they're, and they're one of the big houses. They're one of the big houses. And they're in kind of cahoots and opposition with the other houses. You never can trust anybody in the other houses. Um, and the only other house that really plays a big part in this book is the Candianos, um, which is run by uh, Estelle and Tomas Candiano. Tomas Candiano is the big chief there. He's married to Estelle. And um, the black market scriver people are Claudia and Giovanni, which again feel Italian to me, and the like, in-house Dandolo scribers are Orso and Berenice. It sounds Italian to me. So It does me, sound all Italian. It sounds that you put it that way. <laughs> Those are all really yeah. Italian so, names. So to me, like, Renaissance Italy, particularly Florence, is kind of the first blossoming of modern capitalism. It's where, you know, banking is invented, and the rise of these merchant houses as kind of city-states within a city-state. And I am, I really feel like he must have taken that and grafted it into this fantasy world as kind of a, an anchor in reality that you can reference or understand that helps you intuit or understand things about this fantasy world without being told them. Like he doesn't need to tell you how commercial houses would feel about each other interact, even though he does, but he doesn't need to tell you that because you already know that. 
Or right, you get the feel of how they treat each other. And then when they explicitly say things like, we don't really have laws. Yeah. Like to live in a, in, a well-ordered society that doesn't have written laws tells yeah. you a whole lot about the world. Yeah, it does. So I think, he's, I think he's clever and he's taking a foothold in a world that you know, in a history that you know, in a reality that you understand and using that to build his world building off of so that he can give you a point of reference and then twist it and surprise you and and give you the information that you do need to know about what's unique in this particular environment, which made me feel comfortable faster than I often do in science fiction fantasy novels because I have a fairly steep learning curve on, on <laughs> science fiction fantasy novels. If they're going to lose me, they lose me in the first 20 pages. Right, because you can't figure out what's happening Yeah, who are the people and what's happening and what's going on, and I hate this. And then I'm, bleh, it's too hard for me to... Or too much vocabulary where yeah. you don't know what any of the words mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do and you it, think the audiobook helped here? I always think audiobooks help because I can, I know what things are supposed to sound like. Like Sancia is S-A-N-C-I-A, Sancia. And I don't know that I would pronounce it Sancia if I had not heard it. Right. And I think every time my brain saw it, it would stop and try to figure out. Yeah. I think audiobooks help me a ton for sci-fi fantasy anytime there's like new words cause my, because the book keeps going. So my brain has to figure it out from context, even if right. I didn't know the word. Right. Because the book kept going. That said, this is a particularly smooth book in terms of how he helps you understand this world, I think. I think it's really impressive it, you know, um, in terms of metering out to you the things that you need to know um like for example a plot point in this book is the inability of the houses and their scribers to deal with gravity in in many ways right you yeah. can use gravity to a certain extent but you can't fly and that's not something we need to know 15 pages in. Right. And it says something we need to learn. No, 200 pages in. So that's when it arrives. So he does a great job metering out what you need to know so that you have a really good sense of the world and what's going on, but only the things that you need to know, but enough of what you need to know so that you're not confused, not so much that you're overwhelmed. Um, My second listen through really revealed a lot to me in terms of like what information I was getting just a little at a time. And what things were that combination of foreshadowing and world building that the, on the second read through were like genius. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me think I need to go listen again. Like, do you have an it example? Really, do you think of anything? Um, like things about Gregor's character. Oh, yeah. Like all of them were yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, and things about how scribing worked, what the limitations of scribing were, what the frustrations with scribing were. All of those were both world building and foreshadowing. Like every single thing they said about scribing early on came into play later. Yeah. Very methodically. Very metho and but it didn't feel methodical at the beginning. It felt like the way that a scene builds on a scene, it felt like all of scribing was world built scene by scene in a way that advanced the plot. Yeah. It's it just like, it's a, this is why it's a wow book. For me. Like, yeah. 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 So careful. Um, Speaking of Gregor Dandolo, yes, my we favorite. may speak of him all day. Yes, he's my favorite character 
in this book. Um, not gonna lie, but she's not the main character because Sancha is the main character. It's her book. Uh, and to be a little bit spoily here, close your ears if you have not heard this. When Gregor appears on the page the first time, I, because this is how books work, I pegged him as the antagonist. He is the captain of the guard down at the docks, which Sancha has just burned to the ground, and he's looking for her. Yeah. And when you meet him, you think, oh, well, here's the guy who's going to come and, you know, be Sancha's problem person. And he is for a while. But the first thing he does structurally is to save the cat beat. He is looking for information and he wants to find her. And he comes, you know, kind of out of the darkness into this uh, ill-lit, downtrodden pub and so forth. But, and he has a big, this weapon with him, this scribed weapon. But the people, the bad people in this pub from whom he wants information are engaged in a child prostitution ring, more or less. Yeah. And he makes them pay for it. He beats them up the way you want to beat them up. He does this extreme act of violence yes. for a good cause. The very first thing when you first meet him. And then you're like, very who is the bad guy? Who is the bad I guy? like all the people now. Right. Because I'm like, suddenly, so you've presented to me Gregor Gandandolo in a way that traditionally the antagonist would come in, the hunter, searching for right. a main character, which we've built 50 pages knowing nothing. Yeah. And suddenly he's doing his thing that I'm like, yes, Gregor, you get him. You teach him a yeah. lesson here. Right. But then don't find Sancia, please. Don't find her. <laughs> That's right. So then because, and that was so beautiful because it's really spun me off base. I'm like, should, do I root for Gregor Dandolo or don't I? And he's right. a beautiful, complex character. Maybe the only moral character in this book. Truly, everybody, you know, his agenda right, is, which more, is, so is more selfless for everyone, for everybody. He's the most selfless and rigorously moral person in the book. Um, and I just am rooting for him so hard. I can't even tell you. I worry about him so much. Uh, I'm, I've bought in completely to Gregor phobia or Gregor philia, I guess it'd be right. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, and I think he's lovely. Who's your favorite? I mean, I'm shipping Sancia and Berenice pretty hard. And that is why I will definitely, definitely read book two. Yeah. But, but I, yeah, Gregor, Clef, like these are lovely people. Yes. I mean, the Scrivers, like I want the Scrivers to triumph over capitalism. Like there's. (laughs) And yeah. then, like, the ba- the bad guys that emerge, like, I want to crush them all. Yeah. Like, I'm super, super ready for book two because I have no idea what will happen. And so much is in the air at the end of book one. And I care so deeply about... I mean, I don't want to be overconfident here, but almost any of the main characters that have been introduced, if they were the focus of book two, I'd be okay. You'd be okay. So... So I, I was trying to think. I had like two thoughts while you're talking. I'm trying to remember what they are because, you know, mind like a steel sieve. So thought one is um, reading 
a this is what a trilogy do we think do we know yeah i think so yeah maybe three books they often come in threes this is a brand new book it just came out this year um which when i read it i didn't even know i thought it'd be older but it isn't brand new so we have a bit of a wait for book two and we've read this book and we love these people and we're rooting hard for them Oh, I remember what the other thing is. That's good. I'm sorry. No, stream of consciousness day. So we're rooting hard for these people. We have to wait for book two and then wait again for book three. And I know people who won't read books until the entire series is out. Because they can't stand to wait. Uh, And in waiting, I think you do build up expectation. You want it to be as good as you want it to be. So if you're a if you're a, a writer writing a series and you have other books coming out people are waiting for do you think you owe your readers the ending they're hoping for or do you follow your original vision cuz i mean in the meantime people are going to be all over the interwebs talking about oh i hope this happens i hope that happens this is what i want to see and this isn't the ending you had in mind. Maybe, for all we know, capitalism crushes them all, Lissa. Marion. Well, it could happen. No, I know. I'm <laughs> lost in thought about this whole idea. I never gave it a ton of thought that writers would still be writing book three after getting responses to book one because I don't ever let people read my stuff. There you go. So it has I like. To. Right. I mean, let's take a look at Harry Potter, for example, the mega series of all mega series, seven books. Right. And she wrote one a year. And let's say they became super famous cultural phenomena around book three. Mm-hmm. Right. People, lots of people right. have obviously read them, but they become like a thing about book three. She still hasn't written book seven. She knows she's setting herself up for what she's going to do, but does she, oh, is there, do you think there would be pressure to give the readers ending their hope for and where would that pressure fall from the writer or from the publisher? I don't know. Cause you look at or like Hunger Games, which is family, right? You look at Hunger Games. It's a trilogy, right? Yeah. And admittedly it's a trilogy. I have not finished because, um, because I found out kind of, kind of do not looking, but it falling on me, like that people were unhappy with the end of book three. She has set up the whole, uh, Katniss, Gale, Peter love triangle thing and it didn't end the way people wanted it to although I myself can't stand Gail so I was happy with that but um, people were mad about how those books ended and recently in pop culture you've had Game of Thrones ending and that series which had a huge following and cultural touchstone ended in a way that annoyed its viewers so now you're george rr R. martin maybe this is the way you told the producers you're going to end the series do you still end it the same way or do you change it i mean if, i think you still end it the same way yeah, so you do what you're going to do you and i'm a happy ending reader and i think you still end it the same re- way because if you don't if you don't create the characters and the story that you're creating then the readers don't get to write their fan fiction and don't get to rail against you and don't get to interact with 
the story they hoped would happen. So you're like, saying they still get to say it in their heads. They still get saying, to have their podcast and complain about it. There you go. So Sancha and Berenice at the end of book one are like in a good place. Looking at each other. Looking at each They're other. Like and looking they have, at each other. And, and, you know, Berenice has already told Orso, yeah, I got this. Don't worry. You don't need to worry about us. And Sancha's like, yes, I can, you know, um, interact with people away in a way I couldn't before the things that happened in this book happened. Like even yes. physically touch people, which she could not right. do at the beginning. Um, right. So you're okay if at the end of book three, uh, Berenice dies. I mean, if it's authentic to the story. Okay. Yeah. There you go. And the other, I think the other thing I was thinking about when you were talking about characters was Clef. Because uh, uh, yeah. we've not talked about Clef. Okay, but, so in the description, uh-huh. it's like, Sancia will learn to harness the artifact's power for herself. <laughs> like, right. what in the world? Like... Sanchia has this really freaking cool voice she can hear. That's what it should say on the yeah. back. <laughs> yeah, because for, for a little, I guess, spoilerness, Clef is the artifact. Yeah. He's a key. If your artifact has a name, you should just be all over that. Yeah. Because that's it's, way more interesting. It's, at the beginning, when, you know, she steals this box and then she looks in the box, you're like, don't look in the box. This is right. not going to end well, girl. You know, this is the, the thing you're going to do that's going to drive the other 18 hours of this book. Because mm-hmm. uh, if you look in that box, because you know, and she knows she shouldn't look in the box. And it's Clef. And Clef is funny. Fabulous. Yeah, he is. Powerful. He's, I was thinking like in terms of, of heist books and ensemble casts you always need the comic relief guy yeah he's like the robin williams of foundry side he is the rob if you were casting a movie and you could get robin williams anymore he would be the beautiful casting for for clef he's fabulous uh, and funny and a book needs funny in so many ways and even when he's tragic he's funny even when he's he is hesitant he's funny and something else that's lovely about him is in a big science fiction fantasy book like this one where you have a strange world that you need to explain to other people you can't have two characters who know stuff talk so this is how this works blah 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 so you can't have Orso and Berenice discuss scribing and how scribing works because they both know that but you can have Clef ask those questions because Everything in his world is so different and everything in his world is changing so fast and he's walking into a world he totally does not understand. You can have him ask those questions. And then he does things that are amazing and unexpected. And you can have Sancha, who can talk to him, say, wow, what did you do? How did you do that? And then he can explain it to her. So right, it feels not only, natural. Not only is he doing things that then he's explaining, mm-hmm. He's doing things that no one's ever done before. Nobody's ever done before. So then Sanchi has to say what reality in this world looks like and how he's ruined it. Right. So he's, and she has to pretend it's not happening and pretend what normal is, is happening. And then as the reader, we get to see what that looks like. Yeah. So what are your hopes for book two? Ah. Uh, um, so that power got unleashed. The tall power. The tall lady power. I mean, like my favorite thing towards the end, which I've listened to four times, was 
with including this morning um like there's this big bloody battle in which almost everyone dies and it's and things happen in a fantasy world and Santia comes back and looks around and she sees like the unresponsive bodies of her two friends and she is just talks to them like they're still alive like everything's going to be okay and she just calmly takes their bodies with her towards this future that they're going to figure out like it was so strong it's full of hope it's full of yeah her connecting to them you know, when she starts the book, like, I talk to no one, I touch no one. And now she's like, well, these right. people are like maybe and, dead, and, but I'm going to take them because we are a team now. That was right. my favorite and part. Even, even that I touch no one, I talk to no one in terms of like building on that, her place where she lives is so empty and so constrained, so many boundaries around Sancha all the time. She has this very small life. And by the end of this book, she has this less small, less small, but more mayhem, you know, uh, who knows what will happen from moment to moment, from day to day. uh, And all you can do is, is go toward it, Um, which is kind of awesome. So I hope all of that happens in book two. And if like, if Clef and Gregor both aren't major characters in book two because Uh. they can't be resolved if that's done well and authentically i'm okay with that if they're off screen the whole time because book two opens with like and we couldn't figure that out then i will feel cheated (laughs) and probably not keep it i i don't know i think this author's pretty smart i think he's gonna figure it out um well i think so too i can't imagine a book without gregor and or clef Right. And Um, it's possible if it's a trilogy, they could be off screen a lot of book too. Yeah. As long as I can hope for them, I will keep reading. Well, Gregor's creepy mom will. Is bad. Is will help him, you know, like continue to be extant, I think. Yeah. Nice word choice. It's just, um, yeah, it, uh, that was one thing I really loved about this book. You're talking about motivations and character motivations. You think you know what people's motivations are. Right. And then their deeper motivations are revealed to you or their motivation changes due to their experience. In a, like I said, a really or natural, organic way, but in a, a total surprising. And I was thinking a book this big and, it, and the, presumably the other two are, are as big as this one. This is a big storyline. Um, you need those kind of layers of, of motivation or or the effects of history to carry, carry your characters all the way through that. Uh, and it's just beautiful. It just does a great job with it. And uh, I hope I grow up to be that good of a writer. Me too. So how do I do that for my nano novel in November? Do Gosh. you, you know, write an epic 19 hour long audiobook in 30 days? Sure. No problem. You got this. Do you write, I mean, speaking from somebody who's usually a pantser, I don't feel like this is something you could really pants. Well, you could. You just have to do a lot of rewrites to go back and put all of the right. the breadcrumbs in that you that. didn't know you needed earlier. Well, but you write. Could you the write pleasure. the middle? Could you write the middle of a book? Me personally, no, because I have to write linearly. But many people could, sure. Or plan the middle of a book and then go back and write the beginning and then write all the way to the end. Maybe you could back Maybe. back in a day when I used to 
help uh, students write essays, I would tell them don't get hung up on, you know, teachers are always like, oh, make sure you write your, your hook and then make sure you write your, your thesis statement. I'm like, let's move along. You know, you don't, you're, you're, you've been stuck for two days, three days on this. Let's just write the middle and then we'll figure out what this essay is about and we'll go back and fill that in because you're writing it electronically and it's cool and you can add bits in wherever you like. Yeah. Um, but when I'm writing novels, I can only write them linearly. I can't. I'm just the worst. Even if, even if I have ye brilliant idea for chapter 27, I have to write the first 26 chapters first to get there because I'm lame. So... I'm trying to decide if I could write the heist part of an Ocean's Eleven, I mean, not Ocean's Eleven, but a yeah, heist, yeah, yeah, heist, yeah, yeah. heist, heist, right? If I could write the heist and then go back and write the scenes that led up to each of the people being to that point in the heist. That'd be so awesome. You could even and then I could decide later. I don't see exactly. why you couldn't structure your novel that way. Just open with this heist and then flash back to tell us how we all <gasps> arrived at this point. That's genius. There you go. Start at the middle. I mean, I wasn't really going to write a heist novel, but there's <laughs> never a bad time to write a heist novel. Do you know what you think you're going to write? A heist novel. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I'm currently right at the end of failing at Camp NaNoWriMo. Yeah, again, me too. Yeah. So. Me too. Me too. Me too. I did some good writing at the beginning. That's but, great. Yeah, but not enough and not um, creatively enough. It turned to slog way too fast. Yeah, it's been a tough and busy month. Yes. Yeah. With lots of, of things going on for both of us. So we're lucky we got anything done at all about anything, you know. Exactly. Sometimes yeah. you can emerge from a tough and busy month and just be glad you emerged. Yeah. Like right now when we're recording this, I don't think either one of us is like sitting around in our underwear with a jug of cheap red wine. So that's a win. I mean, I'm a lot closer to that than you would like to know. But. <laughs> We just won't post pictures. No pictures. No pictures. And I'll be fine. <laughs> I have a very nice mixed drink with uh -huh. fresh mint from my garden. Oh, nice. And ginger ale. Something stronger than ginger ale. Well, I always forget that I grow like three kinds of mint in my garden. I need to be out there. You should put it in ginger ale. Like, listen to how refreshing this sounds. It sounds really refreshing. Here's, Doesn't that sound I just nice? had caffeine. There you go. I didn't have any caffeine, so I went the other direction. Mm -hmm. Well, I I always make, you know, caffeine is number one on my grocery list all the time. So, so one more thing here, or two more things yes. about this here now book. One is themes, because I talked at the beginning about, or at some point it seems like, about how this book does have big themes. It's not just a page turny adventure full of characters that you fall in love with right away who are completely and totally beautifully developed and complex. It also is dealing with big themes. Big um, ones. Big ones. Like what do you think is like you, the one that interested you the most? Really broken people, which I think you put more succinctly or eloquently as PTSD and the lasting effects of trauma. I did write that, yes. That sounds smart, but I'm calling it really, <laughs> really broken, really broken people. people. Yeah, like all the characters in here are are fighting pretty, against some pretty serious stuff. Yeah. What is Berenice? I mean, she's got Content, the thing with her dad. You look at Berenice. She is. Or we just don't know yet. She's pretty big. I mean, more or less, you know. 
Yeah. Solder. Where she is. Ish. She's she is interesting because when she arrived, I almost thought she was a machine. Like right? an like an android because she's so precise since yeah, she's like super quick, super smart, precise, but almost emotionless in what she does. Do you think that's a like kind of spectrum thing? I am going to assume that she's a spectrum person, but she seems, in the end, pretty healthy emotionally. So, given what happens to everybody else in these books, I'm sure he'll, you know, I'm sure she's got some trouble coming on a trouble train for book two or yeah. book three. Something dreadful that we don't know yet. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, she'd make a good hostage. She would make a good hostage. But, like, if you... I thought this was a really respectful and lovely treatment of what, how people react when they've had terrible trauma of one type or another. Particularly yes. Gregor, who, let's face it, has the most hideous backstory of yes, anyone in this book. Um, woo! Poor Gregor. Anyway, right? but like, yeah. thankfully, we don't we don't know because he doesn't know for a while. He doesn't know That's for a while, nice. and now he has to like deal with it. You know, right now that he kind of does know, and he the concept that he would know over and over again, he has known. You know, it's like he has to reconfront this trauma yeah. periodically in his life. He happily just doesn't remember that he's had to confront it over and over again and deal with it over and over and over again. Right. Um, and answer the bell, you know, over and over and over again. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And of course, that Sancho, was handled so well. I mean, Gregor's whole character is handled so well. It is. And it's just, there's no, it's not written. It doesn't ever look down on him. It doesn't ever offer him up as an object of pity. It doesn't ever ask you to, you know, say, oh, poor, poor baby. It's It's a respectful and loving portrait of a really struggling person. But he's also the hero. Um, and he I makes mean, him a hero. He is the hero in, in so many ways. Uh, and like I said, the, the best and finest person in this book. Yeah. Uh, and I always admire the best and finest people. You know, give you something to... But he's so strong in so many ways. That, that I love that about him, that he can be this broken and have these problems and be as fine and heroic and admirable as he is. It's just a terrific... Um, a terrific character and a beautiful portrait of the issues that he has. Uh, yeah. What big themes did you see? Um, well, I had rec- I had told you about the like the capitalism thing, and to me, that's like a, a historical document. Uh, look what happens when capitalism doesn't have any restraints on it, and I love that. But the thing I really loved was um, the second theme that I picked out, which is how marginalizing people causes a loss of talent if you don't give people opportunities if you shut them out say we are inside the compo and you are outside the compo and you get nothing those people who are outside the compo scrambling to survive those are people who have talents if you give them the opportunity to develop them and this is also true of people inside the compo there's one character in particular Estelle who yes. is denied yes. opportunity and she has the chops to deliver if given the opportunity and she's not and look what happens you know not good things bad things bad things happen uh, when you 
deny people the opportunity for education, for employment, for position, for advancement, for respect, for a place at the table, that's not going to result in a society that is healthy or or making the progress that it wants to make. All the problems that subscribers say, we can't do this, we can't do that, here's the, the way we are um, constrained by this. All of those things can be you know, and this, all those problems are solved by people who are outside the system to a very great degree. Um, so there's I, this one really speechy speech. Can I read it? Sure. Because it's like the speechiest speech. And now I can't remember who says it. I feel like it's either Gregor or Orso. We'll see if I can remember. But I don't I know won't, we'll for see. sure. It's the every innovation speech. Okay. Um, so it's every innovation, technological sociological or otherwise, begins as a crusade, organizes itself into a practical business, and then, over time, degrades into common exploitation. This is simply the life cycle of how human ingenuity manifests in the material world. What goes forgotten, though, is that those who partake in this system undergo a similar transformation. People begin as comrades and fellow citizens, then become labor resources and assets, then, as their utility shifts or degrades, transmute into liabilities and thus must be appropriately managed. That sounds I can't like Orso. remember. It does sound like Orso. Um, <laughs> but yeah. But like, it's like the speechiest speech, and it's yeah. like super a theme of the book, and yet it's beautiful. Yeah. And when you read it after having read this book or while reading this book, you see all that playing out in the characters. You can put names to the nouns. Right. It is so wow. So, yeah. The it, whole book is wow. It's a whole book is wow. I mean, all the way through, it was like, whoa, wow, wow, wow. And, and I'm so happy that you read it because before my son read it, everybody in the house would be like, oh, so now this, blah, 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 blah. And I don't want to ruin the book for them if they're going to read it. But on the other hand, I was just bursting at the seams, wanting to explain explore talk about fangirl all over yeah uh, this amazingly complex and complete book that's what i've been reading i mean that's what i've been using twitter for you can go on twitter and you can be like hey internet i'm on this page of this book <laughs> and tag the author and say and i'm having all these feels and then everybody else is like yes like i'm having those feels with you and it's kind of amazing. And you can go for like kind of any book at any time. And other people are also reading. I don't even know. I think I want one giant hive mind ebook where <laughs> I can see where everybody else is. And we can just. So you want know. like some sort of chip embedded in yourself or. Or the book or both and kind of. I don't know. Or like, you know how my uppercase box used to have those parts you could go like react to at certain yeah, points? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I kind of want like that or... So you want an electronic book community that really works as a communication. Yeah. Instead of uh, the way social media so often works, which is as a uh, self-glorification. Right. Uh, look how I want I'm it doing better like than for you. connection. Or like the way that other people... Um, you know, post like random little animated pictures of some funny thing from some show they all saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I need the book version of that. 
boy. Right? So like, mm. so I can post a picture of something that's red and something that's blue and all the people reading the book that it references are all like, yes, I see that too. I am, I am reacting to the world in a new way because of this thing we read. Well, Books you are work so on cool. that idea, Alyssa. And see That's impossible. I how, know. How do you translate uh, an old technology and best technology into modern connectivity and, I mean, true connectivity? Because I was really disappointed by the foundry side representation on the internet. Like, there's not enough it is about weird. this book there out there. There is not enough. And, and I had posted about it on the Instagram, which is my chosen uh, uh, social media platform. And I was just shocked because I see certain books over and over and over and over and over again. And then here's this book that just dazzles. And yeah. why is everybody in the world not reading this book? I mean, they have not heard about it from us yet, for well, one. People, go read but, this book. Yeah. And tell your friends. Don't be afraid to and recommend what, it. <laughs> what makes certain books take off and not? I don't know. And this this author, Mr. Bennett, has a track record. This is not his first book. Um, so presumably, maybe there's just a different tiny outpost corner of the internet that we don't know exists but that is all <gasps> raving about this it must be like like the uh the comics world i didn't know for a long time it was a thing until my nieces and nephews became part of that world and suddenly i know there's this vibrant community full of people who are creating and sharing and enjoying and being excited about this thing that i don't even know exists in my own little corner of the world so maybe we just need to search for the corner of the internet of twitter of instagram where people are falling all over themselves about foundry, about foundry side. side it could be like an adventure it's a good plan yeah it will be an adventure yeah we'll do that I feel like already it's going to involve some sort of new social media account I don't currently have. <laughs> I think it's going to involve some sort of new social media platform you're going to have to invent, Lisa. Um. Okay. Yeah. I right. mean, if it led to like connecting around books like this, I would. Yeah. Learn the things. Figure it out. With this, and then and then I of course uh, am your partner in this so that uh, we can buy an island together with our proceeds after we sell yes. it to Google. Yes. Yeah. That's what plan. would we do on our island? Read books. Okay. That's fair. I would I would go to that <laughs> island. <laughs> it's cool. I don't I like would completely the beach, go so to that island. I don't like the beach, so I'll just stay inside and read books. It'll be good. Shade. Yeah. Shade. A little house on the shade yeah. on an island. Yeah. With a book delivery drop off. That sounds reasonable to me. Let's do that. It's a plan. Okay, I'll start with the inventing. <laughs> sounds good. Um, let's see. Do you have final thoughts on Foundryside? Um, I guess it's mainly what left me with is, is my pleasure at coming into a book that I was really kind of reading for self-growth, um, in terms of craft that turned out to be just a book that I'm so happy that I found and, and so grateful to have read and I love so so much and uh, I'm glad I finally had the courage to recommend it to you well thank you I am glad that I 
followed up on your recommendation. Yep. And now we get to move on to our next recommendation, I think. <gasps> yes. So next time on the Book Evangelist, we will be reading my recommendation to you, which is The City in the Middle of the Night by Charlie Jane Anders, um, which, to be fair, was Craig's recommendation to me. Ah. Um, and I currently have loaned my copy to Izzy. So <laughs> it's like a book family that we're in. Yes. Um, or we're just all very successful book evangelists. Um, this is the book that, like, the whole time I was reading it and rereading it, I called it a snuggling book. Um, no one anywhere calls it a snuggling book <laughs> but me. <laughs> but what I like about it is that it's a book that explores, like, found family. Um, and somewhere in reading about it, probably on Twitter, um, I saw somebody refer to books like this as something called Hope Punk, which... I think they kind of mean dystopia that goes somewhere that leaves you thinking that there are possibilities. Maybe. Maybe. So the reviews for this book use words like um, climate change and tidally locked planet. And I use words like snuggling. And so it will be interesting to see what words you use. It, it will, I have to say, if I heard highly locked planet and uh, climate change, it wouldn't be on my to-be-read list, but uh, snuggling and hope punk and found family are my wheelhouse. So, we'll, so we will see. We will see. Um, thank you for listening to the Book Evangelist podcast. Please remember to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Notes for this and previous episodes are available at the Book Evangelist website. Send us your comments and, of course, your book recommendations at thebookevangelist at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.